want you to put your finger there, and then also in the New Testament, find Hebrews 11. While you're turning to those uh, two places, um, I just want to say this. I, I don't think that there's a text or a story in the Bible that gets more at the existential aspect of the gospel. And, and what I mean by the existential aspect, that the gospel is, is, is more than just a set of propositions and definitions and doctrines to be known, but it's this reality that confronts us. It knocks us off our feet. It, it challenges us. It changes us. And it redefines our existence at every level. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, and I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. While I and the boy go over there, we will worship and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. This is God's word for now. Well, actually, let's turn to Hebrews 11. Sorry, I should have page numbers. Let's go to verse 17. By faith, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through your, your son Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned or that these promises will come to fruition. Abraham reasoned. That God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is God's word. You can be seated. I don't know about you. uh, Even though I've read this thing many times, uh, this text, every time I read it, it unsettles me. It confronts me. It unnerves me. It messes with me. Starts off with this, God tested Abraham. In fact, quite a test it is. Take your son and offer him as a sacrifice. I'm a father. If this test comes to me, God and I are going to have a few words. But not Abraham. In fact, there's no recorded response. He just acts. The next morning, he gets up, saddles his donkey, uh, gets Isaac and his servants and everything, and, and he sets off. He trusts God, and he obeys him. Now, what I want us to know this morning is that this isn't the only test that God uh, put before Abraham. In fact, if you know anything about his life, really, you could say his whole life, as described in the Bible, is really a test. I mean, the first words that God speaks to Abraham, lek which is essentially, start walking, Abraham. 
And it's that test for him to get up and leave everything that's important to him, his family, his comfort, and, and to go out and trust God. Then he and Sarah are, trusted with inf- are tested with infertility. Later, they're tested with famine. They're tested later with Lot's uh, departure. They're, they're tested with, with these four kings who come and threaten to wipe them out. And every day, they're tested to trust God's outlandish promises to them. And so, here again, those very first words that God spoke to Abraham, Lechlechah, start walking. Same words here in, he, in, Hebrews, or in uh, Genesis 22. Lechlechah, Abraham, it's time to walk again. And this time I'm not asking you to give up your life. This time I'm asking you to walk to a certain mountain. And I want you to offer up your son. I don't know how you look at life. I mean, I think there are many words that describe life. But I think one thing about life is, I think it's pretty easy to say that life is a test. And the older I get, the more I realize that it's not so much that life tests us, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? God's the one who tests us. I know some of us this morning, when, when, when I say that, you're uncomfortable with this. I mean, what do you mean that God is a God who would test us? Well, it's all over the Bible. And I could take you to so many places, like Exodus 16, where it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread down from heaven for you, and the people shall go out every day and get a day's portion, that I may test them whether they will walk in my ways or not. Judges 2, it says, I'll no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In fact, I'll even keep some giants in the land in order to test Israel. Whether they will take care to walk in my way as their fathers did. The psalmist actually prayed that God would test them. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. I want to walk in your faithfulness. I mean, think about all the tests that we have to take on a regular basis, whether they're tests that we have to take at school or tests that we have to take for our work or, or, or medical tests that we have to take for our, our health. Let me ask, are, are tests good or bad? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, think about why do we administer them in the first place? Why do we take them? I think we know that tests grow us. Tests are what make us stronger. They're what give us muscle. And I'm not just talking about physical muscle, but I'm talking about mental muscle, spiritual muscle. It's why we administer tests in all facets of life. And this is why God tests us. It's the test that grows us. Now, I wish it didn't have to be this way. I wish we could actually grow by just sitting on a beach somewhere, don't you? <laughs> but it's just not how it works in life, and it's certainly not how it works with God. Greatness comes through testing. And if you want to know why Abraham was such a great man, in fact, you could argue other than Jesus, he's the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth. He was tested. Over and over again. In fact, I love what the ancient Jewish commentaries say about Abraham's 
uh, all his testing. They say a potter doesn't test effective wheat pots because even a single blow would break them. But what kind of pot does the potter test? Only the sound vessels, for, for the potter will not break them even with many blows. In the same way, the creator does not test the wicked, but only the righteous. For as it says in Psalm 11 verse 5, the Lord will test righteous. James 1 picks up on this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfast have its full effect in you, that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. That's what tests do. Abraham, take your son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice. Let's ask the uncomfortable question here. Why Isaac? And why as a, a, a whole burnt offering? I'll start with this. Don't know if you know this, but the word uh, for whole burnt offering in the original language is the word holocaust. Because holocaust in the Bible is a specific kind of offering to God. And I just shudder to even use this word in light of our understanding of this word today and, 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 and what's behind it. But holocaust is, is different than most offerings because most offerings, the worshiper would bring their lamb or their goat or their first fruits of their harvest and they would offer it to God and they would get a lion's share back. Only a small portion would go to God. But a holocaust, a whole burnt offering, is one in which all of it went to God. It was wholly given to him. It was the worshiper giving everything with nothing in return. Listen to what God says. God says, Abraham, give me your only son as a whole burnt offering. Well, Abraham has two sons. So why is God saying your only son? Because I think this is what Isaac has come to mean to Abraham. He has become Abraham's only his precious, the thing he loves most. And God says, I want you, Abraham, to offer up your only. See, now I think we're stepping into the purpose of God's tests. God asks us, doesn't he, to give up our onlys? the things that have become precious to him. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but this is the first time that the word love is used in the Bible. And it's not a reference to Abraham's love for God, but it's a reference to Abraham's love for Isaac. The first and greatest commandment is Shema, is that we should love God with everything we have. And it's not so much for God's sake as if God needs our love, but it's for our sake because we have been made to love God above all things. 
Now, I think if we're honest, though, I think it's very easy for us to say today, of course, Christ is the supreme love of my life, or of course, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I mean, stop and think about all the songs we sing that include these things. But here's my question. Is he? Right now, does he function as your supreme love? Right now, does he function as your Lord and Savior? Because really, whatever it is that we look to for our significance or our security or our satisfaction, this really is the supreme love of our life. This really is our functional Lord and Savior. And I know some of you are finding that that after you give your life to Christ, you realize something that kind of haunts you. You realize that your heart is really no different than it was before. Because really all you've done is you've replaced one image for another image. You've replaced one set of behaviors for another set of behaviors. you've, You've replaced one way of talking about life with another way of talking about life. But functionally, your heart hasn't changed. You're still just as angry, you're just as sarcastic, you're just as selfish, you're just as gossipy, you're just as joyless. It's because you haven't given him your whole heart. And just think about our hearts for a moment. Think about how often our, our, our hearts say, if only, if only I had this, I'd be happy. If only I achieved this, I'd be satisfied. If only I got to that place in life or got that person in my life, I'd feel like I'm worth something. And I'll tell you, all these onlys that we have in our life, uh, they, they usually aren't bad things. They usually aren't evil things. In fact, a lot of times, they're good things. If only I could be a good pastor who could preach good sermons. If only my kids would, would, would grow up and, and be successful. If only someday I could lead trips to Israel. If only I could stop the aging process. Ooh. <laughs> See, this is why the test is a good thing, because they grow us by showing us who we really are what we're really made of, the things we really love. The test exposed our onlys. And not only do they expose them, but they, the test can sometimes help wean us off our onlys or if onlys. Things that in the end, they're never going to save us. They're never going to ultimately satisfy us. They're never going to deliver on what they promised. They're never going to love us and die for us. And here's the deal. In the end, we're going to lose them all anyway. So why not just give them up now? Why are you holding on so tightly? So many Christians today live in fear of losing things, whether it be their comforts or control, whether it be losing the people in their life that they love the most. Can I just say something, Christian? Be at ease. Because we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose our possessions. We're going to lose our homes. We're going to lose our health. And in the end, we're going to die. Oh, you came to Easter to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Replace. 
replace that fear and that concern with a more logical one, that one day we are all going to stand face to face before him. And did our life count for anything? Did it count? Does God have your heart today? I didn't know Greg was going to have this here today. But does he have it? Because he's knocking. He wants to come in. He wants to have the whole thing. And what onlys is, is, is right now Christ putting his finger on? He does that all the time. I'll just feel his finger. He's putting it on something in my life, and he's, he's just pointing it out, and he's, sometimes it even feels really heavy. It's like, do you see that, Rod? That only, that if only, that thing that you love too much. Now, there's another aspect to this ha- test. In fact, a deeper horror to it. You're like, what if, as if this isn't enough, but... If you go to Hebrews 11, verse 18. Here's the deeper horror of the test. Even though God had said to Abraham, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Here's the deal. Abraham stakes his whole life, his whole life, on on promises from God And yet all these promises from God run through Isaac. Because God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham. That depends on Isaac. He says, "Uh, I'm going to make a great name out of you and a great people out of you. All that runs through Isaac. And, And then God says, in fact, through one of your sons, I will redeem the world. All of that hinges on Isaac, yet now God is telling him to sacrifice Isaac, the very means by which these promises are going to come to fruition. And see, this is when we know we're really tested. It's it's when God's commands seem to contradict his promise and his blessing. And we're tested in the same way. I mean, think about all the promises that God has made to us. Promises to bless us. Promises to take care of us. Promises to give us an abundant life. And yet then think about all those tests that come into our lives that that leave us thinking that if I actually obey this test, it's going to fly right in the face of God's ability to bless me. I mean, think about the times when, when, when God's wisdom seems to conflict with your wisdom, where God's commands seem to contradict his promises to bless you, where to go God's way and to walk God's path, it seems like it's going to end in a disaster or ruin, or in Abraham's case, even a death. I mean, maybe some of you today are in a job where it just requires that you lie and compromise. And you know that goes against God's command. But to keep your job or to get the promotion, you have to do this. So to obey God could really result in great loss in your life. Maybe today you're in a loveless marriage and you have the possibilities for love outside of marriage, but you know God's command is clear that you are to be faithful to your spouse as Christ has been faithful to you. But you're just thinking to yourself, but God's promised to 
bless me. He's promised to bless my marriage. And so to obey God and to be faithful to your spouse feels like a sort of death. Maybe you're in a relationship today where your boyfriend or your girlfriend is pressuring you to have sex and you know that God's clear command that sex before marriage is wrong, but yet to you it feels so right and you are in love and your boyfriend is threatening to break up with you if you don't do it. And so to walk God's path in this area, it actually feels like ruin to you. It feels like a death. Maybe it's a homosexual lifestyle. You, you just think this is naturally who God has made you to be, yet you also know God's word is very clear on this. And so it feels so unnatural for you to walk God's path, and your feelings are so strong, so it feels almost like a death for you to obey God. See, this is what makes the test doubly horrifying. When our wisdom seems to be at odds with God's wisdom, that to obey God and to walk his path is going to lead to our apparent ruin or a sort of a death. And I'll tell you what so many people do today. They just get rid of the test by getting rid of the command. Especially those commands, especially those parts of God's word that confront our wants and and confront our wisdom. So then we just find ourselves questioning and saying things like, well, did God really say that? There's no way. And if God did say that, there's no way that he really meant that. And so what we end up doing is we go through the Bible and we pick and choose the things that we like about God and dismiss those commands and those things that God asks of us that conflict with us. I mean, think how easily Abraham could have just been relieved of this test by just saying, God didn't really say that. And how many of us just say, God, I'll take all your promises and all your blessings, but your commands and those things. Mm -mm. Let me say this as nicely as I can. If all you have is a God who blesses you and cares for you and rescues you and fits so nicely into all your wants and desires and your way of thinking, but he can't ask anything of you, he can't ever cross your will, then I'm going to tell you something, you don't have a God. Do you see this? Because if you and I don't have a God who can contradict us and put demands on us, a God who can challenge us, we don't have a real God. All we have is a figment of our imagination and a projection of ourselves. We are our own God, or better yet, we're godless. Abraham has a real God. And he knows it. And Abraham shows us what our response is to be to this real God. And he shows us that our response is not an emotion, even though I'm sure he was crying like a baby. Our response is not a feeling, even though I bet he had all kinds of intense feelings. It's not a doctrine, even though he thought great thoughts about God. When we look at Abraham... We see a response, this childlike trust. 
in God that just compelled him to obedience. See, this whole thing is is more than a set of doctrines to know. It's a path for us to walk. It's, It's a choice to obey God and to walk that path. Even if it leads to something that is hurtful or death. Trust him? Are you walking his path? That's the definition of a disciple. A disciple is someone who's, who's walking Christ's path after him. And what I think stands in the way today more than anything else of us being genuine disciples, we don't trust him. But what Abraham shows us today is how we can walk this path, path and why we can trust him. Ask yourself this question. What got Abraham out of bed that morning? What got Abraham up that mountain? What would get you out of bed that morning? What would get you up the mountain? Now, I think it's important to point uh, this small but important detail out. Abraham is like the people of his time. And they understood something about God that we moderns have forgotten. And they understood that the firstborn always belonged to God. I mean, this was such a common practice in in Abraham's time. In fact, it's all over the Bible. God repeatedly says, the firstborn of your flocks, the firstborn of your herds, the firstfruits of your harvest, it belongs to me. God even says, he says, unless your firstborn sons are redeemed through the payment of a lamb, that life is to be offered up to me. Because the firstborn belongs to God. And in the ancient mind, the reason for this is quite simple. They understood the holiness of God. They understood that every family owes God. It's the debt of sin that everyone must pay. And I'll tell you, in our modern perspective, we can't fathom a God who would demand anything from us, namely our firstborn. I'll tell you something, the ancients had no problem with this. So know that, that, that in Abraham's mind, God is not asking him to murder his son. That's not what's going on here. God is asking him to pay up. Abraham, you are a debtor. You owe me something as great as your own firstborn son. Now, Abraham sets out that morning, not knowing how this is going to play itself out. He doesn't have God in a box. He doesn't have God all figured out. Yet Hebrews 11, verse 19, says something important. Abraham reasoned. In other words, childlike trust in God, it's not just this blind leap in the dark. Yes, it's a leap, but it's a thoughtful leap. And and one of the things for Abraham that I'm sure he reasoned, especially uh, having lived a lot of life, is he could look back and, and, and see that in all his testings, he could see every time I trust myself and go my way instead of God's way, it ends up in a mess. So in a famine, when I trusted Pharaoh instead of trusting God, that ended up in a mess. With infertility, when I trusted Sarah and her scheming instead of God's plan, that ended up in a mess. 
But yet every time I've trusted God, I bet he reasoned, he has always, always, in his time, come through. But see, Genesis 22 also tells us the specifics of Abraham's reasoning. The story is so awesome. It's, it, it's moving along quite fast, quite, quite stoically, but then all of a sudden it slows way down in verse 6 where it says, and the two of them walked on together. In fact, this is an inclusio, a bracket. That's the first bracket. Verse 8 has the second part of the bracket where the same thing is said again. And the two of them walked on together. And see, within this bracket, we see a father and a son in complete solidarity, locked arm in arm as they walked to Moriah. In fact, it's within this inclusio that we have the only conversation between Abraham and Isaac that's recorded in the Bible. And here Isaac asks the question, Daddy, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And see, that question gets right to the heart of the story. In fact, it gets to the heart of the story. Where's the lamb? Abraham's answer? Verse 8, he says, Son, God will provide the lamb. See, this is what's driving Abraham up the mountain. It's not just sheer willpower. I can do this. I have the strength and the courage to make this happen. That's not what's getting him up the mountain. What's getting Abraham up the mountain is without a shadow of a doubt, he knows God's going to provide. God will do it. In fact, this word in Hebrew for for provide is, it it literally means to see. And so in other words, what he's saying, it's like, he's saying, son, I, I can't see the lamb. You can't see the lamb, but God will see to it. He will. It's this childlike trust that God will provide. This is what gets Abraham up the mountain. In fact, Hebrews 11 verse 19 gives us even more specifics to Abraham's reasoning in terms of what it is that God's going to provide. It says that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Already in Genesis 22, at the beginning of the story, you have a person who believes in the resurrection. Is it because he had some systematic theology on God? Is it because he took a class? Is it because he heard a sermon? No, it's because this man walked with God and he knew him. And he knew that God is good, that God is faithful, that God can never, ever go back on what he promised. So much so that if God is going to ask me to offer up my son as a sacrifice, the very son through whom all the promises of God are going to come to fruition, well, if he's going to take me to that place, then he's going to resurrect him. That's what he reasoned. 
In fact, this reasoning too is tucked away in Genesis 22 verse 5 when as Abraham looks at the mountain, he looks at his servants and said, all right, you stay here. Now Isaac and I, we will go up the mountain and we will come back. Again, Abraham didn't know how God was going to resolve this. But he knew he would come back with Isaac. Even if it meant a death. A death that led to a resurrection. God will provide because he promised. When I was studying that this week, it reminded me of my kids. And all the times when they were younger... They would say, but dad, you promised. Dad, you promised. (sighs) And that would just go through my heart. And that's exactly what Abraham is saying to his dad. He's saying, father, you promised. And I'm going to trust you even though I can't see see it right now. I can't see it, but I know you're going to see to it. And so we know the story, don't we? We know that that day Abraham obeyed God completely, even though in his mind it might lead to an apparent death. But he walked up that mountain. He placed his son on the mountain, only to discover the greatest of all truths that a person can know, that on that mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In fact, more literally, um, as Abraham declares, on that mount, it will be seen or God will see to it. God did provide. God provided a lamb which was sacrificed in Isaac's place and Isaac's life was spared. Just like hundreds of years later, a whole nation would be spared when lambs took the place of the firstborn with their blood painted on the doorpost, covering them and saving them. And still later, God would put his very house on that rock, on that mountain. And God's people would come to that house day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation. There they came as debtors. But they came with their lamb and they were spared because that lamb wasn't. And I love this little hint in Genesis 22 where it says, as Abraham set out, he saw the place in a distance. It's in the same way that all these sacrifices, all these years... Uh, they saw in the distance a greater sacrifice that was yet to come. One lamb who would, who would once and for all take away the sins of the world. A day when a father would take his, his son, his one and only son, to this exact mountain. And once again, the wood would be placed on his back. And father and son would walk in complete solidarity together. And the father would lay the son on the wood. And as Romans 8 tells us, God did not spare. His only son. But gave him up for a ransom. And Moriah, which we call today Calvary, we know is not just a place of death, but of life. In fact, the best kind of life. The life that comes through death. Resurrection life. And so Genesis 22, it's not just a story about Good Friday. It's a story of Easter. In fact, there are already strong hints of resurrection in Genesis 22. Because first of all, it says this was a three-day journey. 
three in the Bible is the number that signifies resurrection. And think about it. For three agonizing days, Isaac was as good as dead to Abraham. But on the third day, death didn't get the last word. Just like death didn't get the last word with God's son. On the third day, God raised him. Do you see what this means today? For those of us who have faith like Abraham, a faith that's so much more than just a set of doctrines that our minds ascend to, a faith that's more than an emotion or a feeling, because biblical faith is not a noun, it's a verb. Faith is trusting God with my whole heart. Faith is determining myself to walk God's path. Faith is obeying God's commands, even when it seems to contradict his blessing. And here's the deal for those of us who trust him and walk this path. Resurrection will always, always get the last word. That's a great spot to clap. (laughs) And I know why you're clapping. When you have a husband who's in chemotherapy right now, resurrection gets the last word on that test. The text says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided... In other words, only going up the mountain and trusting God did Abraham get to experience the provision of God. And that's the same with us. That when we trust him, when we go his way, when we obediently walk his path, resurrection gets the last word. He will raise us up, all our hopes, all our dreams. He'll raise up our lives. He'll raise up our bodies, our past, our present, our future. It will all be summed up in resurrection. Are you walking his path? C.S. Lewis said it so well. He said, this is the principle that runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing because nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and out for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else thrown in. That's it. Trust him. We're going to take communion this morning. We've prepared ourselves for 40 days to take in this meal. This meal first celebrates. It celebrates the path that the Father and the Son walked. 
God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I want to limit communion this morning to those who are committed or recommitting their lives to walk the path that Christ walked before us, who says to us now, come follow me. Let's pray. God, I I know that there's at least one person here today where you're just putting your finger on something very specific. God, I know that there are people today where you're making this path, you're laying it out, the path you're calling us to walk. It's the path that leads to death but ends in life. This morning, God, I pray that we would Take in to ourselves all that you are and your power and your presence through this meal. That it would inspire us and fill us and grow us and compel us to walk the walk you've laid before us. Jesus said, here's the path. Come follow me. Let us be disciples of you, Jesus, on this Easter Sunday for your glory. Amen.